Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people. Your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. Welcome to Marin Costello Radio. Today, boy, do we have a treat for you guys today. Michael Perry is the founder and CEO of Maple, a company focused on building a better world for all parents. Prior to founding Maple, Michael founded Kit, which he sold to Shopify in 2016 and where he worked for over four years as an executive overseeing marketing technology. He has been included on Forbes 30 under 30 list, recognized by Inc. Magazine for his contributions in the messaging space and named one of the top marketing executives in the world by Business Insider. Michael currently lives in California with his wife, son, and two bulldogs. Ladies and gentlemen, the man, the myth, the legend, and my chosen family, Michael Perry. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm so thrilled to be part of your chosen family and thank you for being a part of mine. Thank you for having me on. Oh my gosh, what an intro. You are such a cool human. So (sighs) on the show, I like to kind of give an idea of where people came from because that was ultimately the highlight reel of your life. But let's start from the early years. What was little MP like? Yeah, so as you know, and your guests will soon find out, I grew up uh, in Alameda, California, which obviously a tiny island in the Bay Area. Um, we grew up in a sub-island off of Alameda called Harbor Bay. Um, my family, my mom, it was, it was pretty actually in hindsight, it felt kind of like the sandlot a little bit. My mom was a waitress. She worked with my aunt who was a waitress. My father, you know, sold cars full time. So my sister and I spent a tremendous amount of time at my grandmother's house with my cousin, Brandon. Uh, So we all had like a bit of a little bit of a rat pack. Um, And my family, which was really kind of cool, even from day one in my my earliest days, um, everyone in my family was about the hustle, just like everybody. And so as far back as my memory can serve me. Um, I just remember working hard and being a part of different family businesses or starting my own businesses um, and just have grew up in a very entrepreneurial like mindset with people that have really kind of nurtured and flourished that lifestyle. Do you find that your mentors growing up were your family? I think my, I mean, the easy answer is I think that my mentors my father and my mother, I think there's a certain level of idolization that has taken place because, uh, you know, my mom had me when she was 23 uh, and my parents struggled significantly uh, to raise my sister and I. And there was such a high level of sacrifice um, for my sister and I, you know, we grew up with so little um, to have a, a better quality of life than they could ever foresee for themselves. And so there was the mentorship aspect of like, they taught me um, selflessness and they taught me um, what servitude looks like for the people that you care the most about. And uh, my mother certainly was of the us versus I mentality, as was my grandmother. I mean, I remember being a child and uh, my, my, my grandmother opening up her, her cabinets, and my parents grocery shopping out of her cabinets. Um, and sending us home with groceries. And so I think that my family from, a, I don't know if mentorship is the, is the right word. It was so formative because um, I think that the, the best of me is the best of them. You know, the best of me today is as a result of who they were to me and showed me back then. 
Um, my uncle played like such a large role in my early years as a mentor because he owned a store called Video Maniacs and then owned a jewelry store. And my parents oftentimes sent me to go work for him on the weekends to keep me out of trouble. And he paid me $3 an hour. And so, um, but I don't view mentor. So he would be probably my earliest mentor. But I've always, I think, learned the most and idolized the most my, my parents. What was your earliest exposure to entrepreneurship and to business? Was it your uncle? Uh, yeah, definitely 100%. Yeah. I mean, when I was seven years of age, um, my my mom and dad sent me to work for my uncle on Saturdays and Sundays. My mom would drop me up at 9 a.m. and pick me up at, you know, towards the end of the day. Um, and my uncle paid me $3 an hour. Uh, and I would re rewind all the tapes that were returned and help restock all the shelves. And I did that for many years um, on Saturdays and Sundays. And he just taught me so much about building a business. Um, and my teenagers, I went and worked for him. He had a jewelry store next to Oli's Waffle Shop on Park Street. And I worked there for a number of years in high school. And he paid me $50 a day um, cash, which I thought was, you know, so cool. All the money in the world to be making $50 a day at 14, 15 years of age. Um, and so I think that the combination of him in such an intimate way, exposing me to the hardships of entrepreneurship. I mean, we would sit there uh, and play chess because no one would come in for hours and, you know, watching him sell businesses and board up businesses and do all that kind of stuff. That was, that was instrumental in terms of just like uh, the learnings and the grit and the sacrifice. And then my parents, just their raw work ethic, um, the expectation of always working hard and providing for your family and putting your family first. That was just distilled from as far back as I can remember. When did you realize that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I was never thought that there was another option of any other life. I've amazing. always been an entrepreneur. What was your first go at it? My first genuine go at it that I'm probably most, that, you know, there's obviously all this examples of like, oh yeah, my parents have pictures of me standing in front of our house with like a lemonade stand and selling candy and baseball cards and bubble gum and all that shit. But the real first hustle that I think gave me the taste of, you know, my version of success, my, my family and I grew up in this uh, housing community called Casitas. And um, my friend at the time, this kid, John Weston, he lived in one courtyard over um, we went out towards, um, like the bay, it used to be all dirt by like where the ferry was at. And we found all this just abandoned wood, almost like a pallet. And we were like 10 years old and we dragged it back to his house and we took two skateboards and we hammered it into these two skateboards and we rolled it door to door as a mobile car washing stand. And we would knock on people's door. We had a bucket and soap and rags and all people, and we had towels and all people had to provide was a hose. And for $10, we'd wash their car. And we literally, every day, we would knock on doors and wash cars. And I think when I was 10 years old, I made like 1,500 or $2,000 that summer washing cars. And uh, my parents took me to Toys R Us and I bought a remote control car and a bike. And I just felt so fucking proud of myself because um, nothing was given to me. I, from that moment forward, I've been taking care of myself. I feel like in, in a lot of ways, in terms of my ambitions of, you know, trying to materially gain success. Um, and I think that that's a moment that I look back on. And I really just feel like the, that is probably the spotlight of where the DNA of who you are shines the best in terms of how you want to spend time at 10. You know, I think what you do and love at 10 is a, is a real clear indicator 
of who you are. And just oftentimes along the way, people abandon that person. Um, and I've just been that same guy since then. You're preaching to the choir. I know. Um, I remember. I remember walking down <laughs> Alameda uh, Arts and Crafts Fair and seeing this young girl having a booth and selling beaded jewelry and all kinds of things. And I remember that little girl and uh, so proud of the woman she's become and watching her flourish in so many ways. It's been incredible to see you live an authentic version of yourself. Oh, thank you, sir. You're bringing up so many, so many places in Alameda and in the Bay Area that are so nostalgic for me. How did growing up in the Bay Area shape you? You know, I, I get asked this a lot. I think that there's there's two things. One is, um, I think uniquely where you grow up, you oftentimes gravitate towards like the local economy or the local industry. You know, I think if you grow up in the Midwest, you the, the likelihood of you wanting to become or getting involved with farming is probably very high. If you grow up in New York, uh, the likelihood of you following the news and being a part of the finance industry or being a lawyer, being a very white collar like job is the, the crescendo or fashion or acting or whatever that city's industry provides becomes incredibly influential. And I think that in the, uh, the relationship of Alameda in the Bay Area and being part of Silicon Valley, I, the same way I, I don't really remember this like light bulb moment of like, am I an entrepreneur or not an entrepreneur? I mean, I remember my, and my parents jokingly said that they spent 10 years to pay it off. I remember my parents coming home with their first computer. Um, and we had one computer that our whole family shared. And I just remember being obsessed with this computer. Um, and that I just always felt that I was gonna work in, in, in software. I, like, I always thought that to some extent that was gonna be the world I was gonna live in. And I don't know if that would have happened if I grew up in Texas or grew up in New York or grew up anywhere else in the world. I think that there's such a, uh, awareness of Apple specifically in the 90s and 2000s and obviously being a part of the, the early web point uh, 1.0 area with the yahoos of the world and everything happening in your back door and the excitement and the gold rush experience that was taking place with that you know when you compound that with at that time of my life those formative years of 10 11 12 13 14 I was very hungry in terms of creating financial success that's definitely changed later in life I care less about that today but I was kind of looking at like the hunger of entrepreneurship and the industry of which people were getting rich in. And it just matched with the passion that I actually just love the technology itself. So I think that that was so huge. The second piece that I think was so huge um, is that it, it's less today than it was when we grew up there. But the Bay Area um, is notoriously a, a cultural melting pot. And so I think when you see um, all walks of life, by color, by creed, by economic class, um, by sexual orientation or who they choose to love. Like when you see the whole world in front of you in this formative time, I think that one thing I, I, I genuinely am happy about with myself, there's a lot of things I'd like to improve upon myself, but one thing that I think is very genuine about myself is this, there is a sense of empathy for my fellow brothers and sisters on this planet. And I think that that probably above anything else has been shaped based on where I grew up um, and who I grew up to um, that the Bay Area, I think uniquely has provided me. I love that. Where did you I mean, go to college? You, I mean, you, 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 well, college was a waste of my time, but you grew up in Alameda. Do you know that, that Alameda was this massive, or the Bay Area, I should say, played a role? I mean, you're such a loving, kind human. I mean, do you think that the Bay Area played a role in shaping that lens? 
Absolutely, 100%. And I think it's twofold for me. First is that growing up in the bubble of Alameda really helped me appreciate my family and the close-knit friends that I have. I mean, I'm still close with my grammar school friends um, yeah. as a collective, as a 30-something class group. And I don't know many people that can still say that. Secondarily, like you said, being a melting pot, I mean, I come from a mixed cultural background, but the beautiful thing about the Bay Area, at least when I was growing up there, when we were growing up there, is that you never really knew where someone fell on the socioeconomic spectrum. You never really knew what their background was. So just accepting people for who they are and for the quality and their character and the quality of people that that they are, growing up in the Bay Area, that was the biggest gift that it gave to me. Yeah, I, I... I wholeheartedly agree. I think that, you know, there's this, always this, this famous saying, um, I can't remember where I heard it or fuck, maybe I made it up, but LA is probably one of the, and you used to live in LA. Well, LA is one of the few places where uh, the guy that's driving a Lamborghini probably lives in a studio and the Bay Area is probably one of the few places where the guy that lives in the $20 million house is driving the Prius. And so there is this like sense of um, like humility that I think is so uniquely applied to wealth in the barrier in terms of like there was a time where level setting existed um and i think that that's very admirable and something that i admire deeply today i couldn't agree more um but i do want to talk about your college experience you said it was a waste of your time but explain that it was well i mean i went to a very good high school Um, i went to bishop odell high school in the oakland hills it was a college prep high school um uh, when I went there, it was considered one of the top five high schools in the Bay Area. At one point, it was one of the top 10 high schools in California. Um, you know, 99.9% of the people who graduate go on to a four-year university. I think the year that I graduated, uh, out of 300 kids, you know, 10% went to an Ivy League school, like just a really stellar place. So one is I think that high school was incredibly important in terms of um, where I learned probably the most, um, structural learning at least, and um, the excellence around academia that um, I didn't really get to take advantage of. One of my biggest regrets was not trying hard enough in high school. Uh, And part of that was I was working a full-time job. I was working 40, 50 hours a week when I was in high school. Uh, Monday through Friday, I was a pool boy and Saturdays and Sundays. So I worked, um, I'm sorry, Monday through Friday, I worked in a kid's club at the Claremont Hotel from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, I did the 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. pool cleaning shift. And so I really, again, prioritized making money over learning. And when I went to San Francisco State, um, I remember my very first class was English 101. And they wanted to talk about, we were going to learn that semester about five paragraph structure, um, essay writing. And I learned that when I was 14 as a freshman in high school at the high school that I went to. And I was like, holy fuck. So actually the last college book I bought was after my uh, freshman. I I didn't buy a college book again after my freshman year of college. I did my sophomore and junior year with no college books and just showed up and just randomly passed class. I ultimately dropped out of college on two different occasions, tried to go back. I never graduated school. Um, and that what I learned was, and I'm learning this even at a higher level now in the, in the working culture, is that when you're a part of a system that does not work for you, you're destined for failure. And the, the problem with college was that I, I, I struggled so much in college and failed classes and 
uh, and the result of the system, and I would say the system failing me was that it left a very negative ripple on my own confidence and thinking I was unintelligent because I was struggling to pass very basic classes. Um, and so I just, I've arrived at a place where I don't know if the nine to five working schedule is the best design for every working professional. I also don't think that college is the best design system for learning and solidifying uh, credibility of what you can do. I think that there's cases where, uh, you know, like I don't know if I want to go see a doctor that hasn't been to med school. And I don't know if I'd want to have a legal team that hasn't gone through the rigum of passing the bar, but I don't know if I can say in business that going to business school or having an MBA is of greater competitive advantage than going out and failing in the real world and learning um, real lessons. And similarly, I don't know if you get the best out of employees when you force them to work a nine to five when their mind is designed to optimize and operate at higher levels at different times. And so that's why we've introduced different flexibility hours at the current company that I'm working at. Um, and school just failed me. I, 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 it was the perfect storm of me learning too much out of college prep school that the first year of college was way too fucking easy. Um, and the second piece of it being that school was just not for me. Um, and that I knew I didn't want to go be a, a $60,000. I mean, I, I, at, at one time in college, I was making $150,000 a year selling cars and I was making more than my professors. And I was like, you can't tell me shit. I was very arrogant. I was living a very large life and I was 20 years of age making 10, $12,000 a month. And that also factored into me just losing interest and in, in trying to graduate from a school to go make a $70,000 a year job. How did you go from that job in college to your entrepreneurial ventures? Well, when I was 18, after graduating high school, and obviously I moved to San Francisco, I started going to San Francisco State, I went and worked for my father as a detailer, washing cars. Um, and at that time, I can't remember exactly what he was paying me, but I think it was like $12 an hour or some, something, something around there. And um, I was watching these guys who I just didn't think were very talented making six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month selling cars. I'm like, fuck this. I can do that. So I actually used to have hair longer than this. I one day went and got my hair cut and went and bought a suit and showed up to work. And I said, I'm going to start selling cars. My parents were like, OK. Uh, and so I ended up, you know, not realizing I was going to spend the next seven years doing that. Um, so from 18 to 25, I was selling cars. Somewhere along the middle of that, I stopped selling cars, dropped out of San Francisco State, moved to Santa Barbara, lived there for a year, came back. But I started basically, you know, I started, I think around the time I was 21, 22, um, realizing that life was not playing out how I wanted it to. Um, you know, I didn't go to a cool school like UCLA. I didn't, uh, or Miss Costello went, uh, <laughs> I didn't have Saturday football games. I, I hadn't even drank alcohol or gone to parties. Um, I was in a really toxic from, from at the end of my high school time with my high school girlfriend, toxic relationship in hindsight. Um, and she was off living in a different state. She went to UCLA, but ended up living in New York, like the world people were, people were growing into themselves. And I was not becoming who I envisioned I was going to become at 10. At 10, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. And here I was not being one. I was 22, 23, 24, 25, high school dropout, selling cars. Life is going by. I'm working 100 hours a week. Um, 
And I was around 22, I started working on software ideas and building software companies on nights and weekends. And after doing that for a couple of years and failing a couple of companies, my wife basically, who was my girlfriend at the time said, hey, you really want to do this. You're really good at it, but you should probably just go 100%. And so um, I just built up the courage to just say, fuck it. Like, this is my one ride. Like, I think people grossly under, like, disrespect time. Like, I just had this like real strong epiphany in my early 20s that I am going to die. And I want to make every decision moving forward to minimize my regret at the end. And one of the things I knew would be a huge regret was not trying to become the best version of how I envisioned myself. And so I walked away from the job, started a company, put $60,000 of my own money in. You know, this is a very long story, of course, but um, sold cars sold my cars that I owned to, to finance that, that, that company, that company after three years ended up going to zero, lost family members money. I was about $70,000 in debt on credit cards, was dealing with eviction notices every 30 days, was living on food stamps. You know, the story gets kind of crazy from there. Um, but I just think that if everyone at any age took a step back and recognized that this is it, um, that there is no second ride, um, that you have one admission ticket, but you get to design the roller coaster. I bet you if they had the courage, they would change their life. And most people just don't. So when you're talking about, you know, having, having money on your credit cards and on food stamps, mm -hmm. my question is twofold. How did you maintain your perspective during those moments? And two, what was the next step to get you into the next chapter? Well, I, so one thing that I think is critically important is that I, I learned and I was humbled that there is no such thing as self-made. Um, not a single person in my mind on this planet is a self-made millionaire, self-made success. Um, if people had the humility to take a step back, they'd realize that they had a support system, whether that was their spouse or their partner or their friends. Someone told them, keep going. You can do it. I believe in you. Because at the lows of lows, you don't believe in yourself and you wanna quit on yourself and you wanna go backwards. Very few people have just like the 100% tenacity to say, I need no one. I actually can't think of any way, right? I genuinely can't. I've met billionaires and super successful people and um, I don't think any of them could honestly say, no one helped me get here. In my case, in those lows, I was living on food stamps. My sister, you know, I used to, she lived a couple blocks from my, my wife and I and it was humiliating. I'd go down and pick her up from the bus stop at night to walk her home because it was San Francisco. It was late at night. She was my baby sister. I didn't want her walking to her apartment as a young woman by herself. And she would bring over her leftover lunch that she got it from work. Uh, and my wife and I would go home and split in half her leftovers. And that's what we'd eat for dinner for a year. Or my wife and I split a can of beans for years. And, um, what kind of kept me going was that at some point you shed what you think you care about. So for me, um, I used to care about people thinking I was successful. I used to care about people thinking I was smart. I used to care about making a ton of money. I used to care about all the things that actually don't matter. And when you fail and 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 you're being discounted as a human and people don't think you have it, there's a part of you, there's a, there's a flame a very special magical flame that burns inside of you that speaks your truth. 
And for me in those moments, when I'm walking my 25 year old sister home and eating a half of a half of a fucking six hour old sandwich for dinner and a quarter of a pickle and a can of black beans. Um, and that's the only thing I'm eating for the day. And I can't even afford a cup of coffee. I was up against myself. And the question that I kept having is, is there, is the world right about me? Am I really this big of a loser or have I just not had success yet? Am I, am I, do I know the truth about myself? And I've always felt when I had nothing, I would walk around and tell people I'm a millionaire because I always felt like eventually it was going to happen. It just hasn't materialized yet. I never lost sight of who I thought I could become as an entrepreneur. Um, but it also required my sister to help feed me. It required my wife to work three different jobs. It required my parents to never ask me to go figure it out and go get a real job. No one ever said, this is not going to work for you. People just said, toughen up, get through it. You'll be all right. And I think that in that, that propelled me. The unspoken heroes of my life is my wife, my mother, my sister, my father, um, the people, my friends, people like you, the people who they just, they just cheerleaded me. And I'll never claim to be self-made or a success story. I just feel like I'm a, a product of my environment of a lot of people caring about my ambitions and efforts. And I feel like I hit the lottery simply because I had those people in my life. What did that time period look like when you, your words, not mine, but quote, had nothing? When ultimately I feel like in those moments you realize that you have everything. But... I've always had everything because I've had my wife and she is my everything. And, we, you know, I think that in those, first of all, it was seven years. That's the seven. answer to your question. It was seven years. We went no vacation. I went no days off, worked seven days a week. Um, we did not take a vacation, like literally didn't go anywhere for seven years. Um, had no money. I think we got our PG&E shut off somewhere in the 50 to 100 times. Eviction notices every 60 days. I mean, we were literally struggling for seven years. I, I, I don't really think people understand. I, I can't believe Alex didn't leave me. I can't believe my wife didn't say, hey, you know what? I'm a beautiful girl. I got a pre-med degree, a biology degree. Good job. I don't need this shit. I didn't sign up for this shit. I mean, we were living a life of poverty. Um, and I just never gave, I, and I, I never will give up on myself. Um, and I just, I just knew I failed a company, failed another company. People quit on me. I mean, I just wasn't going to let someone else or the elements of the things around me make up the outcome of my life. Just wasn't going to, I just like, I just, and still I'm at ground zero. Again, I just walked away from a, a dream career. And again, I'm not in the same financial situation, but like, I'm, you know, I'm betting on myself again um, and going to get it wrong a bunch and people are going to quit on me along the way. And that's just the way that these things go, but it's the people that love me the most that will never leave my side. Um, and big shout out to my wife, big shout out to my in-laws, big shout out to my parents. And again, a big, quiet, unspoken hero is a, a big shout out to my sister who, um, and, and the low, I mean, I just had so many people just trying to, 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 to support me. That's amazing. Let's talk about your wonderful wife for a moment. Yeah. Um, how did the you easiest know topic that? of <laughs> the easiest topic of conversation? Um, when did you meet her? How did you meet her? I met her on August 3rd. Uh, 20, uh, 2006. Um, the first time I met Alex, I was driving down to Santa Barbara to move to Santa Barbara. And my friend that I was driving down with me, Princess Decorda, uh, invited me up to her apartment to meet her roommate. And her roommate that night had a girl spend the night. And that girl was Alex Solomon. 
And uh, the second I met Alex, I texted my friend Princess and said, I'd, I'd like to get to know your friend Alex a little bit better. And uh, over the course of a month, I got to hang out with her a bunch and we got to become really good friends and found out that she was just like a very uniquely special person. And um, friendship turned into boyfriend, girlfriend and boyfriend, girlfriend turned into fiancés and fiancés turned into husband and wife and husband and wife have turned into a set of parents to a couple boys and a couple dogs. Um, but I think we can all at various chapters of our life, look back and think about what are these super specific moments where we could have gone different routes, right? Life is all about standing at intersections daily and these little nudges of different avenues you go down, you don't know in the moment, but it's a very important road you're walking down. Um, meeting Alex, was, it's hard to say if it's the number one uh, of that day in that apartment um, was the most significant moment of my life. Um, but it's certainly like, it probably will always be top three most important things that's ever happened to me in my life. When did you know that she was your life partner? It sounds so stupid because we were 20, but I remember around Christmas time. At that point, I'd known her for four months. And, you know, we grew up, so we grew up in the Bay Area. And then I spent, at that point, the last two years standing on a car lot with a bunch of fucking tigers and gorillas and a lot of very tough people. Um, and I just met this girl who was from this central rural place in Maine, and she was so selfless. And I, still to this day, I've been with Alex for 15 years. I've never heard her say, still to this day, a single bad thing about anybody. And I just met someone that I just felt like, there's no one like this. Like straight up. I've never, even if she left me, divorced me, uh, I hope that that would never happen. But I don't think I'll ever meet someone like Alex again. And I just, I just remember like we went to Paris January of 2007 and I thought, I never want this person to leave my side. And more importantly, I never want to leave her side, right? I think what makes Alex and I unique is that um, we have championed, we've never asked either of us to change who we are. We've only asked for us to be the best version of ourselves. And whatever that looks like, we have to love and appreciate who that person is. And I just feel very lucky that the person that I love and appreciate um, is like just generally someone I want to spend every day with. I would say watching your guys' relationship has been such a privilege for me to witness. I think that the love that you guys share is not of this generation. I, you know, I don't know enough about love, to be frank, to, to answer that. I haven't dated that many people. I haven't. It's just that I, at 20, I would lay in bed and feel like I'm so lucky to be with you. And at 35, I, I sometimes cry laying in bed because I'm like, how did the time go by? We're getting old together. I wish it would last forever. And but I also appreciate because I recognize that it won't. I love that. And now you have a beautiful little one, Leander. Mm -hmm. my, my king, my son, my pride and joy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, again, testament to Alex. I mean, I think the most unspoken thing is... Um, just how, whether it's friendships or um, partners, relationships are the purest form of currency to living. They're what make life. You know, when I'm, when I'm at the end of my life, I don't think I'm going to think, oh my God, these companies I built, these houses I bought, these cars that I drove, these clothes that I wore, these places I traveled. 
I, I Greece is not going to be standing by my bedside. Neither is my Porsche. Right. It's like <laughs> my wife is going to be there and my children will be there. And um, Alex found out in 2017, uh, she was not going to be able to naturally conceive a child and that we were going to have a very hard journey in front of us. And there was a, there was a few options and all of them were good options. And we, we chose the option, or I should say, Alex courageously chose the option of in vitro fertilization. Um, and um, through her sacrifice and pain, um, uh, we have a, a son who um, has redefined life for me and redefined value and is my central purpose of being. Um, and I feel indebted to his spirit. I feel indebted to who he is, but I feel all like the highest form of gratitude that my wife did that and gave me that and let me experience that. Um, and now we have a second boy on the way and she, she took the same painful journey, but we have a second son coming in August named Solomon. And um, my whole life is dedicated to those three people now. Um, and it's the ultimate. And again, when we go back to the earlier conversations, these are the lessons I learned young about putting your family first, but you don't really know that until you get to become a parent and you really realize how insignificant you're, you've, how, how little you care about what's going on with you and how much you care about what's going on with them. And that the joy you feel is, oh, I, as a son now, I feel like, fuck, how did I move away from my parents? I'm, I'm sure it's like killing them. Because <laughs> uh, I'm like, I hope Leander is, you know, I hope I, I can buy him the house next door. I never want my boy to leave me. So was there a significant shift, like an MP, like an MP yeah. before Leander and an MP after Leander? Oh, 1 million percent. Like undeniably so. I mean, I think that, you know, before Leander, there was a young man who was really angry in a, in a lot of different ways. I uh, grew up in a lower middle class family to two really hardworking people and had this huge chip on his shoulder that he had a total fuck you mentality, that he was going to run through walls, burn down towns, do whatever he needed to do to, to make it. And his definition of making it was building companies, making money, you know, I, I actually am going to change my bio. I don't give a fuck that I was Forbes 30 under 30 or that I, you know, business insider said I was the top 20 people in the world. Like these things at one time mattered greatly to me. Um, today, my bio should read Michael Perry, entrepreneur, investor, father. Um, and the emphasis should be on my children. The first time I held Leander, that's maybe the only competing spot for the first time I met Alex. I, it, it is a spot that if I close my eyes, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to start crying on your show, but I have a, as a I, I'm very fortunate that I have a very unique photographic memory and I, I'm very, very good at recalling imagery. Um, and I can close my eyes and I can feel him in my arms for those first times. And I, I remember it's like the world went quiet. It's like I didn't hear anything else in the room time came to a complete stop. And I just realized that my whole purpose, the whole thing that I thought about, I, I, it was a rebirth moment. I think that every person really actually has two, two lives. And I really deeply believe that their first life is this stumbling process of trying to figure out who they are. And the second life is actually coming to the reality that you only have one and the things that matter are so small. The list is very short. 
And when I held Leander, I realized that my purpose on this planet is not to figure out how much fucking money I can make or how many companies I can build or being CEO of the year. My purpose is the same purpose as every other living organism on this planet, which is to care for my child. And um, sure, I now run a different company, but I went from focusing on helping small business owners and helping them fulfill that purpose to shifting as a result of Leander. My work at Maple is my Taj Mahal moment for my son. My company is built around the premise and hope to be a better father for him. And um, I just think that I just, I'm so thankful that I've, I had this awakening of understanding what I'm really on this earth to do. Let's talk about Maple. Tell us about That's, your company. So at the time that my son was born, I was working at another company. It was a commerce company. And um, uh, you said in the intro Shopify. And at that time, you know, I felt like I had the dream situation. I was running marketing technology for a publicly traded company. I was a, you know, maybe top 20 executive in the company. I oversaw all of our partnerships with all these great companies. And it was it, it thrilling, truly. It really, it really was quite thrilling. But I had just spent the last 10 years building software to help people do their nine to five job as best as possible. And I became a father and I realized this is also a pretty real job. This isn't like being a cousin or being a brother or even being a son where we're, we have biological connection and I love you, but it's very different to be a caregiver for somebody else. And not only just a caregiver, but the experience of watching somebody grow um, is radically different when it's yours versus like seeing my sister dance at West Coast Dance and crying because I'm so proud of her. Um, memory. And, and the, the memory bank. And, um, there was, there was this like very sad reality that I took a step back and said, okay, for 40 years, we have been every, every generation of human has participated in some revolution. Going back to the Stone Age, the, the revolution of the Stone Age was tooling, right? The whole fucking era of humankind was named after man creating tools. And we've had all these different, and then we have the bronze and we have, you know, currency. And anyways, I'm a, if you follow history, every time period is associated to the development of pushing humankind forward industrial revolution, all of it. And so we are living through a technology revolution and that has moved humankind forward. We have made commerce easier. We've made social connectivity easier. This podcast or this is happening because of technology. Industries are built around technology. Every single profession, vertical aspect of our professional careers and life have become more streamlined, more opportunistic, more optimized, uh, more efficient, all the adjectives you want to come up with. Uh, but yet parenting has remained the same for the most part and actually more complex and challenging in today's world than the Stone Age. Stone Age was like, keep your kid alive, keep them fed. Today, the level of complexity is out of control with what it takes to be a parent in today's world. And as a technologist, I stepped back and just said, like, what's out there to help me do this job? Because every other tool I use is designed to help me do my job. And there was nothing. And I realized that in this great technology revolution, somehow, because everything is so Machiavellian and about money, uh, we have forgot about parents. And uh, I sat on this for about a year and decided that I wanted to go and build, and I've, I've been learning, Marion, I've been learning a tremendous amount um, about, you know, what does it take to run a household? Why does mom carry most of the mental load? Why, um, 
you know, just all these complexities to like how the system of parenting is set up the same way we think that the system of schooling is set, set to fail some people, the system of a nine to five workforce is set to fail some people, the system in today's home is failing most people. And so Maple is a unique mobile application um, that allows for parents or family members or the people in your life that you're building your household with um, to collaborate and accomplish the workload of the home. And so that way, that invisible work and the mental workload that is typically carried by one person is now distributed and shared by many. And we believe that this change in the system and the technology that empowers the change of the system is gonna be a generational company that literally transform the house that most of the next wave of children will grow up in and the, the, the way that the house comes together to get things done. Um, and so we started that company in August 2020. My co-founder and I, Mike, who this is our fourth business together, um, we uh, built a team in the last part of 2020, early 2021. We raised almost $4 million to date. We've hired nine different people. We have thousands of people using the app currently in beta. We're doing a bunch of product changes right now to get the, ready, the, the app ready for public launch. But I just hope that Maple is a company that stands for um, improving the quality of life for many, but part of that means bringing equality to everyone. Um, and I, I just believe that Maple will be the most important body, outside of raising my children, Maple will be the most important body of work that I, I personally do. What does the name mean? So Maple is a, I, I think the universe chose the name for this company. Um, at one point we wanted to name the company Matter because uh, we're all made of matter and it just seemed like a, a cool name for the company. And then I started getting a little bit deep in my philosophical bag about so much about our life is man-made, so much about how we define purpose is man-made. I think people are crushed under the, the unexpected pressures of society that I don't think are fair and exist. And so I started asking, you know, what is the purpose of everything? And again, I do think it's about keeping our species alive. That's the singular purpose. And I thought, as someone who loves trees, like, wow, fuck, a tree has the, you know, man cuts a tree down to make a home. So there's all these examples of man harvests the tree. Man does a lot of different things to make paper and to destructively hurt the world, but also push us forward. But the actual purpose of a tree is to provide shelter and to provide oxygen. That is the actual, provide nourishment, provide shelter, provide oxygen. So I, I love, love, love trees. And so I started thinking about wanting to name the company after a tree. And then there's three things that made me realize that Maple was the perfect name. One is the house I grew up in in Alameda in Casitas on Flora Vista had this beautiful Japanese maple in the backyard. And the house that my parents moved us to uh, off of Fernside had a beautiful Japanese maple. The house I grew up in Oakland had a beautiful Japanese maple. The house I bought, my first house I bought in Oakland had a Japanese maple. And the house I had in Calistoga that unfortunately we recently lost to the glass fires had the most gorgeous maple. So the maple for me is the tree of the home in my life. And at the time that Alex found out she couldn't have a baby, uh, naturally, we uh, decided to take a trip to Japan to heal. And part of that trip to Japan and having these very heartfelt conversations and moments and prayer and crying, and we went around Japan chasing the, the red maples, chasing the maple leaf changing from green to red to yellow. And it was in Japan that Alex decided that she wanted to move forward with IVF, knowing that that was gonna mean procedures, surgeries, thousands of shots, stepping away from her career that she worked on for 15 years. Like 
Alex going through IVF has been probably the largest sacrifice and gift I've ever seen anybody do. And I just think that the maple tree to me is just the ultimate symbol of family in my life. And so um, if I was going to give the rest of my life, um, which I am, uh, to building technology to better families, which Maple will, it felt like it was the most appropriate name um, for the company. You have such um, a spiritual relationship with yourself, with the world around you. Do you, do you have a spiritual practice? As an observer, I, mean, I can say that it's spiritual, but I'm curious what your yeah. actual practice is. So spirituality and religion has been a very conflicting thing in my mind for about 20 years. Um, I grew up as a, 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 in the Catholic church. I was an altar server for a number of years. Um, I do believe that there are so many unexplainable things that are out of my reach. Um, I think the church taught me a lot about servitude and, and, and putting um, everyone before myself. On a spiritual level, though, I, I think I assimilate the most with Buddhism. And on a, on a deeper level, um, I just am like, I feel, I feel very deeply connected, um, mostly to time. Like I just, I just really recognize my time is going to be really short here. Um, I don't know how long I'm going to live as a human on this planet, but no matter what that age is in the scheme of things, it's moot. It's, it's so irrelevant. And so, um, I just have like this, I just think we all should take a step back and basically live life through, I think two really deep places. One is gratitude. You don't deserve to be here. No one deserves anything. I don't deserve the things I have. Um, somehow, some way the universe decided to give me a shot and give me a run on this planet and get to experience fresh air and experience the wind and watch trees change colors and be in the ocean and see wildlife around me and get to just experience the marvel of the unexplainable. And I think that that is just such an amazing, I got this morning, I went for a walk down the beach, I went for a run and then I just, I just stopped and just stood there. And I'm just like, I'm so insignificant in this world. It's just, I don't matter. So why not just enjoy it? And the other place is that I think that sometimes we take ourselves so seriously that we lose the lens of empathy. 99.9% .9 of people, yourself and myself included, if we're being honest, is probably struggling with something. There is no perfect scenario. And so if you know that you yourself are dealing with complexities and the brother and sister to the left and right of you is equally dealing with complexities. So why not be kind? Just why not be easy? And I just think that if we all kind of came from this place of recognizing that we are not that important and that being here is a gift, being here is a very unique part of the human experience at this moment, at this time. And that the people that we're experiencing it with are struggling to simplify their own life and have peace in their own mind. Life gets so much better when you live life through these two places. And I don't know if that's spirituality. I don't know if that's maturity. I don't know if that's, I don't know what you would classify it as. I just know that I will only be Michael Perry once. I don't know what will happen to my spirit when I'm gone. I hope 
I hope it's not like a computer where they just flip a, the switch and that's it. I hope that I go somewhere. I hope that I come back as something. I'm okay with whatever that looks like. I'm prepared for the journey and I'm curious about what that might be. But the same ways as that's the unknown, the magic of being here right now is unknown. And so why not just appreciate this? And I just live my life like that now. I just, I just live my life because being Leander's dad is the best fucking thing in the universe. Being Alex's husband is the best thing in the universe. I won't ever get to be those two roles ever again. I'll never get to be Alex's husband again. I'll never get to be Leander's dad ever again. And I'll never get to experience this world in this way ever again. And so I'm just going to cherish it and just try to make the people around me better and add as much value to them as a result of it. And um, I just find life better that way. That's beautiful. Do you, do you meditate? Do you journal? I do. I, met, I, I was for a long time meditating every day. I think what I do is I practice mindfulness, which I think is very different than meditation. I think that there's an exercise of meditation and breathing about calming yourself and, and, and feeling the world around you. But I think taking a step back and practicing mindfulness and being aware of where you're at in the world um, and the privilege that I have in this world is a far better exercise of the two, right? Taking a step back and just saying, holy shit, I'm a lucky motherfucker um, is just the, and I think it's okay to say, you're lucky. I think so many prideful people say, I'm not lucky. I worked hard. Oh, that's part of it. But maybe you're lucky that the universe gave you the work ethic that you have or gave you the skills that you had or allowed you to be born in a country where you can go from being a fucking sewer rat like I was with nothing to climbing to the highest level at the highest peak of the highest fucking mountain, right? Like the fact that I'm living in a healthy, safe environment is fucking luck. I didn't choose to be born here. The universe placed me here. And I just think that um, being aware of that and practicing the mindfulness associated to that, um, like letting go of the seriousness of ourselves, that to me is very powerful. Uh, but yes, I do meditate. I do not journal. I need to. I've been working with an executive coach who's asked me to journal more frequently. I do write poetry as a form of therapy and a form of expression. Um, but honestly, I just think that it's just slowing down and taking a step backwards and just practicing gratitude that will serve everyone on this planet um, better. Do you meditate? Not as much as I want to, but I think similarly to you, it's more mindfulness. It's more um, less less closing my eyes in a dark room and more mindful, like movement meditation. You know, yeah. if I'm doing something, I love in, I love being in silence, whether it's yes. working, whether it's cleaning my home, whether it's relaxing or doing the most. I like being able to hear the thoughts in my head for me. Silence is loud. Yeah. And so that, that to me is meditative. Um, yeah. I, I, I just think that like, um, why squander the opportunity, right? And I just think that um, so much, like you look at Instagram and I think that this, I think Instagram is the worst thing that's probably ever happened to society in so many ways is that most people go, has the highest fucking activity on the planet. Most people go on Instagram and they spend so much time looking at what other people have and wondering why they don't have it. That's it right? Why does he have that car? Why does she have that body? Why does it's, it's such a cancerous tool to the mind. 
Um, it's literally like giving your brain a cigarette. Um, and so as a result of that, we've lost the clarity of how good we actually have it. And that's sad. That's crazy sad. Very so true. if I didn't have a business, I'd delete that shit. Cause I think it's fucking terrible. But all of my social media platforms are business only. And people ask yeah. me all the time, why don't I post personal? And it's like, I, cause I'm busy living it. Enjoying my life. That's yeah. why. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I I had deleted it, but then so many of my family members were like, we want to see pictures of land or we want to see pictures of what's going on. I'm like, I mean, it's just so good as a tool, but it's like, it's, yeah, it's a wild thing. No, I get it. I think that's a huge reason why this podcast has kind of given me a new life as far as technology and social media has is concerned is because it's not so focused on the hyper edited, curated yes, feed. Yes. It's like this yes. is real. Yeah, and it's been great. I mean, mind you, I've been doing most of the talking, but it's so great to just be able to catch up with a friend and just share thought. I mean, I used to love, and I had friends uh, before COVID, and we would just sit down and just like have a glass of wine and just just talk about life. Like, what's going on? Are you okay? Things good? How's business? How are your kids? You know, it's like that doesn't happen enough now. And I think that podcasts and, and conversations like this have they felt such a nice void. But I think that people. Um, are like over my personal opinion is, you know, here's my just high level two cents for whatever it's worth to whoever's listening to this. The world right now is filled with experts, um, which is crazy. Uh, if every single person was an expert, every single person would be happy, rich and healthy. Um, and that is not the case, right? The, the irony is that we are, we all are, are actually experts, but it's experts of ourselves. And so we're seeking information, even in this podcast, someone's going to listen to this for some sort of gem. There is no fucking gem here. This is just what works for me, right? I don't listen to, um, I don't chase trends. I don't invest in fucking crypto because I don't care and I'm not interested in it. And I don't chase random things or follow random advice or do random shit because it's just not for me, right? And I think that if more people focus on what was right for them, um, that's like the ultimate path of getting on the right course of life well that is my two cents that's beautiful well on that note how can we support you honestly like I, I i'm most interested at this stage of my life in supporting other people um you know obviously i'm i'm open to anyone who's on twitter or instagram as we just shit on both of them but uh <laughs> i'm at michael perry everywhere i'm michael at growmaple.com like i always love just trading thoughts and certainly if you're in a family which we all are um or you have friends who are expecting children to recommend maple i would be endlessly grateful for um but honestly the best way i think actually let me take that back the best way any person can support me is um, and like, cause I actually have sadness in my heart that I don't think enough people are spending time investing in themselves. And so um, that's my actual ask is if people could set, I just got this piece of advice and it's been brilliant. If you could pick a random time, don't look at your calendar, just pick a random time in the day, maybe it's 3.20 and set an alarm with a good chime. And when the chime goes off, take one step backwards and ask yourself, what's great about today? That's what I want everyone to do. And I bet you if you did that day after day after day after day after day after day after day, you'd feel pretty good about life. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, 
just for everything. I love and miss you so much. I oh, I miss you too. Uh, Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, of course. And I hope that we can uh, start up Mike Cella again. You're, oh, uh, I mean, <laughs> the one thing I, the one thing I am definitely vain about are my birthday parties. And when COVID passes, I am planning on going on a birthday party. I might have a birthday party on a non-birthday month. I might just like, the second I can bring it back safely, it's going to be a big vibe. And a special, an, an extra thank you uh, for introducing me to my twin flame soul sister, pseudo life partner, Chelsea Lefkin. Shout out to Chelsea. So I'm looking at her artwork behind you. Shout out to Chelsea. You are, you are. Yeah. Um, well, I adore you and thank you so much for everything. My pleasure. Love you. Love you. Well, my heart is so full. A huge thank you to Michael Perry for taking the time to chat with us. Another thank you to our radio station at Dash Radio for hosting us and our producers at Island City Media Group. If you liked this podcast, please like, follow, and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me on Instagram at Marin Costello and Marin Costello Radio. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We adore you, and we'll see you next week.